0: Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
1: There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S., and each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Ion Veterans. Welcome to CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, a reporter with ConnectingVets.com. And as it's Christmas time again, I want to share one of the greatest holiday stories I've ever heard from a military veteran. Now, the story isn't as well known as the Charles Dickens classic A Christmas Carol, but it does begin with an Englishman. And he eventually smuggled booze down the deadliest road in the world and founded a bar called the Baghdad Country Club, where ambassadors and assassins had cocktails side by side, making this one of the most interesting Christmas stories you'll ever hear.
2: And so we'd always talk about having, you know, something. Wouldn't it be great if we could open a bar or something like that would get a proper drink? And he, you know, he said, look, I'd love to, um, James, but the problem is I can't get into where you can get into. I can only get it so far. You know, I'll, I'll just effectively front you the money until you sell it. Dude, we, we had anything from from Johnny Walker Blue Label, we had the Jack Daniels, we had Jim Beam, we had Absolute Vodka, Smirnoff Vodka, and all sorts of flavors. You know, it, it, was, it was jam-packed. I mean, we were passing beer over people's heads. It was kind of one of those kind of crazy scenes. And, I certainly always felt incredibly nervous. I used to carry like an M4 and a a Glock, and the M4 was like tucked beneath my seat, and the uh, the Glock was like under my leg as I was driving. You know, I personally took a choice that I'm not going to live my life hiding away in a bunker somewhere. And the club motto has always been, it takes real balls to play here.
1: Welcome to Vet Story. I'm your host, Phil Briggs. And today we're going to meet the guy who founded the Baghdad Country Club.
2: My my name's James Thorneau, and I like to call myself Sir, but I'm not knighted in any way. Um, No, I just call myself James. James Thorneau.
1: James was a bootlegger, a bar owner, but not just any bar—a bar that was built in Baghdad and existed during some of the bloodiest times of that city's history. But before we skip ahead to our tale of gin, whiskey, bourbon, and beer in the middle of Baghdad, tell me about your military service.
2: Uh, I was an officer in the Powers, the British Parachute Regiment, uh, so we uh, we crossed the border with two Mesh, um, down in from Kuwait into southern Iraq uh, during uh, the first sort of operation, which we call TALIC-1, um, hmm. in 2003. And then I, I'd done sort of eight or nine years by that stage in the British military, and I was Getting to a rank whereby it was going to be a desk job, and that really wasn't what I signed up to do, uh so I left, and a friend of mine just uh, happened to have a contracting company that won the contracts for the secure in the green Zone, so he called me up and said, "Would I come and run and set up the security for the u s. embassy in Baghdad?" So I did that for six months to a year or whatever it was, and then And then that's when um the the kind of bootlegging started after that by by accident to be right. honest
1: and then to mark the time and kind of era you were there i want to say early 2000s that would have been in an era we kind of define in the american experience as, as the surge era right i mean that was that was kicking indoors. that was really taking the city door to door right
2: uh yeah i mean when i was when i was running the embassy uh it was the end of 2003 coming into 2004 i guess it was kind of uh, spring to summer to April-ish 2004 when the surge really started to kick in, when things started to go slightly sidewards and then from sidewards to really bad. You know, initially it wasn't like that. You know, you could go downtown in Baghdad without too much trouble. Um, you know, we used to go down and have uh, have meals out by the, the Tigris there um, in 2003. Um, but then in 2004, that all stopped pretty quickly. Um, and that's when you were getting the Westerners that were kidnapped since they're headed. Then we had the Blackwater incident, you know, in Fallujah. Um, the, it was becoming impossible almost to live outside the green zone. Uh, and even within the green zone, um, you know, you were getting constantly rocketed and mortared. And there were some of the suicide attacks at checkpoints and then sort of driving up and down the roads. That was very... Um, it was very difficult at the time. So during the surge in 2004, 2005 era, there was a lot of suicide bombings, vehicle-borne IED bombings, that kind of thing, sniper attacks. So yeah, it, it was in the surge period.
1: Wow. And the only reason I bring it up is because I think contextually it kind of lays into the next part of this story, which is what makes you kind of half crazy. I mean, during this tumultuous time. You are a booze bootlegger and a bar owner in arguably one of the most dangerous places in the world.
2: Uh, well, i was, you know, it, it's not obviously what I set out to do. I didn't enter Baghdad thinking I, I'm going to bootleg kind of liquor and uh, and open this bar. Right, but like anything in these kind of environments, things are pretty fluid, and you know, you roll with the punches. And uh, and it was like I say, it was it was really an accident that this happened, and and. You know, you you could get a drink in Baghdad, just about. I mean, it wasn't fabulous by any stretch of the imagination, and the wine was terrible, but there were some guys, some Christian guys still selling liquor from the back of their house, uh, and it was very, very ad hoc. Okay. Um, So, you know, there there was no bar like you and I would understand as a bar. Um, There were a couple of cafes in the green zone um, that were, you know, almost tent-like with plastic furniture. you know you could get a beer or something like that but there was nothing that that you and i would like to say would, would associate with with being a bar and so we'd always talked about having you know something wouldn't it be great if we could open a bar or something like that or get a proper drink or whatever you know? and then i was coming i was flying in from dubai into baghdad and the transport system of the, the planes um, were were charter planes and they uh, they weren't very reliable so the planes to get canceled at pretty short notice. So we have been kicking around the airport for like three days. And this guy came over to talk to me, this, this Iraqi guy. Uh, and anyway, we ended up chatting. Uh, he was a really nice guy and uh, exchanging sort of what we did to a degree after a while. And he, he turned out to be the owner of the duty-free rights in Iraq. Hmm. And so, you know, that's pretty interesting in it itself. I don't often meet somebody that owns the duty-free rights to a country.
1: I was right about here in our discussion that I was questioning how he actually knew this guy had the rights. I mean, uh, it's not exactly the most stable time in that country's history.
2: When you, when you say he was allowed to trade, let's put this in perspective. There, there were no rules as such in, in Iraq at that time because there was virtually no government. So some people will tell you alcohol was illegal. Other people will tell you it wasn't. There was actually no sort of you know, set guideline as to what was legal and what wasn't legal. So we had to start you know, we we kept it under the table as much as we could. Sure. But you know, had there not had there been a government, he has a piece of paper from a government at some stage saying that he owns the rights to the duty free in the country. As and when he's allowed to trade that.
1: So in kind of a lawless land he still had some piece of paper with some sort of legitimacy. Amazing.
2: yeah I kind of asked him how he got that and he was like, Oh it's a long story but basically He used to trade sort of duty-free before the war, and he brought a a huge shipment of cigarettes into Baghdad, which the government still owed him for. So he basically camped out at one of the military bases until he eventually got hold of somebody um, who basically said, well, look, we can't pay you for your consignment, but I can give you the duty-free rights to Iraq, and that's how he got them.
1: (laughs) Nice. Anyway, I'm not going to question the
2: guy. So I, you know, I say, "Well, get some, uh, get some decent liquor and get some decent wine down here." And he, you know, he said, "Look, I'd love to, um, James, but the problem is I can't get into where you can get into. I can only get it so far." You know, it's pointless. I need a business partner to do it. Do you want to? You know, would you partner up with me and do this? So I was like, "Yeah, sure." And and then we took off, but we took off at, five at, at night, and Baghdad didn't have landing or runway lights at the time, and. You know, no no commercial planes could land at night on, on, in Baghdad. So I kind of knew we weren't going to Baghdad. So, and I was the only Westerner on the flight as such. And my security team were waiting in Baghdad for me. Um, so I said to the air hostess, look, you know, look around the plane, look at me. You can see the problem I've got here. And that I know we're not going to Baghdad. So do you want to tell me where we're going? And it ended up being a bill in the north of Iraq, sort of in the Kurdish controlled region. All
1: right. So pause real quick. And a quick search reveals that Erbil is the capital city of the Kurdistan region in Iraq. And while human settlement dates back in Erbil to 5000 BC, it's the history around 2004 that's kind of scary. There was a parallel bomb attack during celebrations in town killing 109 people in February of 2004. And in the springtime of May 2005, there was another attack killing 60 civilians and injuring 150 more outside a police recruiting center. Officially, the Erbil International Airport didn't even open until 2005. And so there James is, sitting on a plane where he's the only Westerner surrounded by Iraqis, descending and landing in the war-ravaged territory of northern Iraq.
2: Now, the guy I was talking to, Ahmed, was Kurdish himself. So, you know, he kind of leaned noble. We were sat next to each other. He said, listen, don't worry, my, my father's very close to the president um, of Kurdistan. I'll, I'll get you sorted out now. I was like, yeah, of course he is. Um, <laughs> but to be fair, Kurdistan was nowhere near as bad. You know, Erbil was no, nothing like Baghdad. So I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't as worried as I would have been if, you know, we'd have been going somewhere else, but still. I didn't know anybody in, in, in Erbil. I didn't even know if there was a hotel up there, to be honest, because I'd never been. But to be fair to Ahmed, as soon as we landed, he got his phone out and he made a couple of calls and we had sort of, two armored vehicles on the pan there to pick us up as uh, we did you know, uh, bust the plane. And and he took me to a hotel, and, you know, a nice hotel, and said, look, you go upstairs, have a drink. I'll sort the bill out. Uh, you know, Now the president knows I'm in town. I kind of sort of see him in the morning, but we'll get you to Baghdad and we'll, we'll chat later. So, yeah, you know, he was exceptionally hospitable to me. He did that in the morning, got me to Baghdad, and, you know, that, that was that. For, I don't know, a couple of weeks, three weeks, maybe. Uh, and then out of the blue, he just kind of called me up and said, um, oh, are you still interested in what we discussed? Which which I said, yeah, I mean, absolutely, but I don't know how this is going to work. I mean, how do you want to do this? And he said, look, I'll bring this stuff down, these 40-foot containers full of liquor, you know, full of wine. I'll get them into Baghdad, sort of compound, his compound at the edge of Baghdad. You know, you come up, we'll, we'll exchange the containers, you take the containers down. You know, you sell your stuff in the green zone, and I'll sell my stuff at the airport. And as long as we agree not to compete on price, you know, I'll, I'll just effectively front you the money until you sell it. <laughs> so, what, I mean, a,
1: what an incredible what a guy, gift. I yeah,
2: mean, exactly, yeah, exactly. So I was like, are you sure? Because you don't really know me, and uh, that's an awful lot of money you're risking. And he was like, yeah, listen, I trust you. You know, what are you going to do?
1: Huh. All right. I mean, I guess he's got a point. Even though his point is scary as hell. Um, how did he get his hands on the liquor?
2: Yeah, he had a contract with Diageo, one of the biggest alcohol supplies in the world. Oh, indeed. Um, I
1: recognize the name. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, you know, this stuff would come from wherever, all over. Congregate in Turkey, on the border there get driven through the border, you know, to, uh, into northern Iraq and then down towards Baghdad.
1: Wow. So, so these were actual, these weren't just bootlegged versions of homemade vodka in a mason jar. no. Th- no these no. were actual no, no. Was, brands
2: of... Genuine. The vast majority of it was liquor and wine because obviously that was a high-priced item. And it was easier to transport that because obviously the size of cases of beer, mm-hmm. um, you could still buy beer downtown. In Baghdad, if you knew the right guys, there were some warehouses that still had deer. The problem was that they were owned, the vast majority of them were owned by Christians, Christian Iraqis. Because the militias were becoming so strong in Baghdad, particularly at the time, certainly around Sardis City and that kind of area, uh, a lot of the guys that were, you know, had been alcohol sort of distributors were being killed. So they were all kind of closing down. There was, you know, two or three of them left.
1: All right, let's just pause and get our head around this for one second. Everybody else in the liquor game is getting killed.
2: Distributors were being killed.
1: And James decides to get a shipment of high-end, high-priced brand-name liquors and get into the bootlegging game.
2: And we'd smuggle it through from wherever he was into the clock. Mm, this guy has huge balls, right? Dude, we, we had we had what so anything from from Johnny Walker Blue Label we had green we had uh, gold then obviously your blacks and your reds we had the Jack Daniels we had Jim Beam we had Absolute Vodka Smirnoff Vodka in all sorts of flavors um, any kind of top I'd say top shelf any, any kind of recognizable shelf liquor we would have within reach bear in mind. We only have 40 foot containers to move this stuff in, and we have to sort of carry, you know, 13, 14 different brands of wine in that as well. So, right, right. We, we catch to the main brands. Well, it was very good stuff, to be perfectly honest.
1: Tip of the Captia for making this all happen. But now, um, yeah, let's pick back up where I interrupted you. Pardon me. Um, We've now rendezvoused. We've picked up our lot of booze, our 40 foot container. You've headed back to the green zone. Now, talk to me about what happens next in this story, which inevitably ends with you guys. Basically running
2: a bar well the, the first load came in on this 40foot container we, we had a we had a, a, a big rig lined up to take it from the airport down to the green zone which there's a main road for those that obviously don't know Baghdad there was a main road like a, a freeway that ran between the green zone and the airport which was you know a safe area within reason as well and it wasn't particularly long I mean it's probably uh, 10 miles maybe give or take probably took me 15 minutes. But the trouble was, it, it was at the time. It was a really, really dangerous road because, like I say, that's where you know, a lot of the military convoys would drive up. So that's where a lot of the insurgents were trying to hit anybody connected with, you know, the 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 war efforts. Um, so there was a lot of suicide bombs, a lot of IEDs, or vehicle-borne IEDs, sniper attacks. That road was it, it was a it was a hairy road to say the least at the time.
1: To demonstrate just how hairy of a road it is, Google search. Route Irish. It's a nickname I read for the highway that runs between Baghdad Airport and the military fortress that is the Green Zone. There you'll find countless videos posted from about 2003 through 2005. They show charred and wrecked vehicles that met their violent end along the stretch of that dusty highway. Watching just a few seconds of these videos, you can feel the anxiety and adrenaline they must have felt. The garbage strewn median, the holes blasted in the sides of the road, the suspicion of anyone visible or any car visible, the overpass ramps, the dangerous and ominous looking concrete intersections, watching the heavily armed vehicles pass by, and knowing that during this time there were attacks every day. Makes you wonder how anyone made it through. And gives me a real appreciation every veteran i meet that did
2: the guy that we had driving it didn't it turned out didn't have the right badge because they changed it over that day he was an iraqi guy so we ended up driving the rig down from the airport into the checkpoint 12 which was the one thing you know closest to uh, the airport road but checkpoint 12 couldn't take 40 foot containers because they didn't have the scanning equipment so then we had to kind of back this big rigger which neither of us knew how to drive um <laughs> No. And then took it through the back streets of Baghdad, which are narrow to say the least. And the traffic there is, you know, you think traffic is bad in D.C. at rush hour. I mean, it's nothing compared to Baghdad with no traffic lights and no policemen guiding anything. It's just chaos. Uh, so we eventually got it around to checkpoint 18 and then and they got a scanning machine there. So I went through and the, the you know the other guys got the container through and uh, I met my guy at the airport said, look, it's going to be 15. 50 tons. You need a 50 ton crane to lift this, and there aren't any 50 ton cranes in the green zone. So we use two 40, sorry, two 20 ton cranes, which you know will be sure the mass doesn't work out on that. So we've got these two cranes trying to balance this container out, and it's just a, a bit of a lower low and hard sketch trying to put this thing <laughs> on the ground. But by hook or by crook, we got it on the ground, and and that's when the sort of sales started. Christmas, Christmas Eve, really.
1: No way, wow. you're unloading a shipping container with two kind of ad hoc cranes, not even strong enough to do this, and this is all going down Christmas Eve? It's
2: yeah, time for a Christmas miracle, right?
1: Christ- Jesus would be so happy. That is- <laughs> I'm not getting involved in that. I don't know about that. I can't vouch for him, but I was happy. A Christmas miracle. I love it. Okay, go on.
2: Uh, so, so, you know, before this was all, you know, whilst this was going on, I was talking I to a, another a friend of mine that I knew, and I said, "Look, well, this is what I've got. I kind of need somewhere to sell this stuff from. I'm not quite sure what to do with it. So we ended up kind of renting this, I don't know, the closest thing to a shop, but, it, you know, it's not like a shop you and I understand as a shop. It was a kind of space that actually had a child's floor and a little bit of air conditioning, which was like 30 feet by 30 feet perhaps. So we just threw it all in wholesale, effectively boxes, and uh, we opened up sort of, I think, the day after Christmas for the sales. And then, um, then, you know, because it's quite a, well, it's obviously a very small community in the green zone. Um, Not much is kept a secret. Um, you know, people would poke their head in and find out what was going on. And then the jungle drum started. And, you know, before you know it, you've got a ton of people coming in to, to buy your merchandise. And that lasted for about, this was sort of early 2004. That lasted for about six months. And it was a place that was, it was the only thing, the closest thing to a sort of Western bar which was like a working man's club uh, or a social club. Sure, sure. Uh, but the Ministry of the Interior got offended by it and closed it down, said, you know, you can't have your night here anymore, I'm sorry. So the, the whole thing disappeared off. And then, you know, when I got this liquor, I was talking to you know some of these guys, and I was like, look, I really want to start the Baghdad country again, but I, I want to start it properly, i.e., you know, we're going to have it every night. It's going to be as good a bar as we would find in, in America. It's going to have proper food. You know, food that you and I want to eat you know, as a change. I want a beautiful garden. I wanted it very much like sort of Ritter Casablanca's cafe.
1: Can I just pause right there? When I told my editors that I was going to talk to you about this story, that's exactly what we thought of. Casablanca, Humphrey Bogart. Here's looking at you. Good, you know,
2: we're great, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, we wanted something that was good, something that people really enjoyed coming to the whole purpose, the whole point of the, the, the country club. And it still exists in this sense now. Is, is that it's done, it was, stood for and stands for you know the best of what we can get right you know i'm not the richest guy in the world i can't afford certain drinks but i'll take the best of what i can afford you know the club was kind of the same but we'll, we'll do our best to get you the best of what we can get hold of uh, and we'll present it in a way that, that is as good as, as we can do it so you feel as comfortable as you can feel and perhaps you know for that short period of time you're in this club you get away from the troubles of the war for a little bit and, But it also acted as a very important area because it was one of the few clubs, well, it wasn't the only club for a start, but it was one of the few places I was going to say where anybody, as long as you had a badge to be in the Green Zone, could come in. So you'd get, you know, know, Iraqi ministers in there sitting next to American diplomats, sitting next to, you know, uh, an NGO or the UN or a contractor or a military guy, depending on which military you're from.
1: As James continued to tell this story, you could see it all kind of unfolding in front of you. And even more interesting, to think of the international diplomacy that may have occurred right there at the bar.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of problems get solved over alcohol, don't they? In certain ways. <laughs> a lot of things get fixed.
1: Please, I I you only know? wish our governments could actually do so, you know?
2: Yeah, so, so anyway, we started selling this stuff wholesale. Uh, and then, you know, it went crazy. Crazy, crazy. And the people I was renting the shop from... This was kind of maybe six months later, perhaps a little more. Uh, they were, they'd were lost their contract or whatever. They were leaving country, so they didn't have their villa anymore, this shop was attached to. So there was a villa around the corner um, of where we were in the green zone, this beautiful corner villa. And, you know, to put this in perspective a little bit, so obviously the people that haven't been there, the, the green zone was where the, the you know, Saddam had his government. That's where his palaces were. and You know, there were some really big, nice old houses in there. But they were all, uh, you know, dilapidated now. And the Green Zone was becoming incredibly packed because, like I say, living outside in the Red Zone was becoming increasingly difficult and dangerous. So any kind of Westerner with a contract for military, they w- we were all packed in there. So the price of the villa was, I don't know, for maybe like a 3,000 square foot villa, was probably $200,000 rent for the year. Whoa! So, you know, but I needed to move so we went in with, you know, $200,000 in cash and spoke to the owner and said, look, you know, we want it. And he's like, okay. And gave me the keys and walked out literally there was then.
1: And there was like no permitting. Like, there was no like, you know, how we would do this in England or in America where you'd need to present nah. some business plan and you'd have to have plumbing certification and a contractor nah, come out.
2: No, I mean, we were told him what we wanted to do and he was like, yeah, okay. I mean, as long as when you finish, you turn it back into what it was, he's, he's fine with it. But chances of seeing him again to be personally honest. The two hundred thousand he's probably left to go somewhere else. Right. Um, and yeah, you know, some guys were making a fortune absolute fortune if they owned a house in the green zone. Um, you know, and that was wasn't even the most expensive house. I mean I've heard of people paying four hundred thousand dollars a month for sorry a year for um, for renting houses. Whoa. Um so Age actually was my fix-it guy. You know, he got his cruise in. I said, right, we need a kitchen. We need – I want proper bathrooms because the other thing was bathrooms in Baghdad were not fantastic, to say the least. Uh, I said, I want some proper bathrooms. I want a separate female bathroom, and I want a male bathroom. And, you know, I want uh, a marble bar, and I want wood paneling, and I want a garden. I want this beautiful garden. And this – you know, there was this beautiful kind of corner plot, but it was all, you know, literally uh, just dirt so he got sods of turf in and trees and lights, and yeah, and you know it took about five months, I think it was another I't do know two hundred and fifty three hundred thousand bucks put into it. but by the end of it, we had this thing. You know we had this beautiful place. I built a kind of uh, <laughs> back to sort of Casablanca. I built this kind of bedroom and uh, and office above the entire club, so I could live above the club and
1: Hi, right, wait, stop guy's got the only bar in a war zone. It's like a little piece of Casablanca paradise with a garden and a marble bar. And he's got a bedroom above it? Now I'm just saying, I think he was probably, at some point in his life, the happiest bachelor in the world. <laughs> All right. But I digress. Go on.
2: Um, and then... It was, I can't remember the exact date. I, mean, I think it was September sometime, but I could be wrong. on um, that. Some guy, it was Thursday afternoon and we were, you know, we were as busy as normal on, on a beautiful kind of you know, five o'clock Thursday night type thing on, on the start of the weekend. Everybody's in a good mood. And this guy that I know, you yeah, he knew what I was doing. And, then, and he said, look, James, can I knit next door and just have a look at the, uh, the club and see how you're doing? So I was like, yeah, yeah, okay. Come on, let's go next door. So we went next door and he said, do you mind if I have a beer? I'm, yeah, the first one to have a beer? I was like, yeah, come on, why not? So we had a beer and he called a couple of his friends that were next door and they came in and they had a beer. I mean, I didn't know, you know, before you know it, there's like 20 people in there. And then by seven o'clock, there was like 400 people in there. We weren't even, you know, we weren't even set up to open. We, I didn't even know the price of anything. Um, and there was like a <laughs> bunch of my friends kicking around as well from, you know, people I served with uh, in, in the forces little contractors out there. And I was like, look, guys, you know, Rich and Simon and some other guys, like, guys, get yourself behind the bar. And they're like, well, what are we charging? And I was like, I don't know. Just make it up. Yes, I don't really care right now. And yeah, you know, we were passing. You know, it was it was jam packed. I mean, we were passing beer over people's heads. It was kind of one of those kind of crazy scenes and chill beer in bathtubs and stuff because we just couldn't cool it fast enough. And yeah, I think by like sort of yeah, eight o'clock, nine o'clock, we ran out of beer. But it, you know, it was a great night. We went on till two in the morning till eventually we literally ran out of virtually everything. Uh, and I was like, okay, we're shattered. We're closed, guys. Let's let's get out of here. Um, and that was kind of the opening of the club. Really, it was, it was again. Not planned in any way, as all of this seems to be, uh, for some reason. But it turned into this kind of, you know, pretty cool, well, really cool club, I guess, in a certain way.
1: Now we can end the podcast right here. With the impromptu opening of the Baghdad Country Club, and on its first night, it sold its entire inventory of beer and almost every drop of liquor they owned. I mean, this story blows away my other favorite bar movie, and that's Tom Cruise in Cocktail. Would this become a movie? I'll wait. We'll get to that in a minute.
2: Given what we were doing, what we had to work with, and, you know, the risks we were taking to do that, because, you know, bootlegging liquor down the, down the route Irish, as the airport road was called. You know, if you got caught by the militias or something, or through the back streets of Baghdad, if you got caught by the militias, you, you didn't get a jail fine. You know, you got executed by these guys.
1: Yeah, that was my question is, were you ever scared of the authorities of whether it was the Baghdad police? I assume that they were our allies, but there could have been factions that hated us for being Westerners. Or were you ever Uh. afraid that like uh, uh, Al-Qaeda members or, uh, you know, what became ISIS members? um, Were you ever afraid of those guys just rolling in kind of nondescript? And then all of a sudden, you know, it turns to chaos and anarchy and sadly tragedy.
2: Uh, I mean, on the on the on the liquor runs themselves, I was. I mean, again, unless you've done it, you don't really understand what Route Irish is like. But as soon as you leave the green zone, you, you, you go hot with your weapons. So I used to carry like an M4 and a, a Glock, and the M4 was like tucked beneath my seat, and the M, uh, the Glock was like under my under my sort of leg as I was driving. I used to wear body armor, obviously, but under it like overalls, have some you know grenades and some smoke uh, grenades, sort of on my chest and stuff. But yeah, I I used to roll kind Of nondescript low profile, as, uh, as we call it, to try and blend in as best I could. So, yeah, I mean, you, you, I certainly always felt incredibly nervous getting out of the green zone and hit Maroon Irish, but I used to try and do it first thing in the morning before any traffic started in there, before the kind of big military convoy started going up and down. And I think I would, I mean, fr- firstly, let me just make this clear the, the chief of police used to live next door to me for a while, uh, and he was a nice guy. And he was introduced by uh, to me by a friend, and you know, said flat out, "Ask the guy." I said, "Look, this is what I'm planning on doing. Do you have any objections? Is there a law against this or anything?" He's like, "Look, you know, James, as long as I can drink, there, I don't mind." And he was joking. He just meant, you know, there's basically no law, James. Nobody's going to pull you up for this I'm on the Iraqi side, anyway. So I was like, "Sweet, okay, done." Um, so basically, you know, just
1: the liquor runs were the ones that really raised your blood pressure. Inside the green zone, you felt relatively safe.
2: I mean, as safe as anybody feels in that kind of environment. I mean, let's, again, put this in perspective. You, you were being sort of mortared and rocketed quite regularly. But that's, you know, in the, in the lap of the gods, as to where that lands kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we'd, we'd often run, to take cover, like everybody in the green zone where the sirens would go off. You'd run or you'd hear the, you'd hear the launch anyway. And so you knew something was inbounds. Cycles so would go off, you'd run for hard cover. We were in a big sort of concrete building anyway, but you obviously want to get away from glass. So, you yeah, know, we'd all run inside for a bit, and then there's a bit of nervous energy, and then it lands, and you're like, okay, and then you go and have a look where it landed and make sure everything was okay. And, you know, that was one of the threats. The other threat is obviously you know, somebody coming in as a suicide bomb or whatever. I mean, yeah, you're, you're conscious of it, but it's like, you know, it's like anything. You can't live your life being scared of everything. And, you know, I'd been over there three, four years by that stage, you know, like a lot of the guys were. And you either, A, get complacent or used to it in a certain way that the threat is always there. But you can't, you know, I personally took a choice that I'm not going to live my life hiding away in a bunker somewhere forever. You just can't. That's not healthy. So, you know, we used to have, you know, obviously, firstly the security getting in the green zone. People search. You can't just walk into the green zone. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, Now, you know, were there many suicide attacks at the checkpoints? Trying to get in, Yeah, of course. But you've got layers of security through that. Then, you know, we also had the guards on the gate uh, that would search everybody before they came in. And, and you know, that was one of the reasons, the, you know, particularly the U.S. embassy weren't overly keen about their people coming. Understandable. I mean, if I was the RSO, I'd probably do the same thing. You know, you don't want people gathered in that kind of environment for somebody to walk in and blow themselves up. And I completely understand that. So I wasn't. Yeah, he, he put a circulation, and even a really nice guy. He came around and sat with me and said, "Look, I really wish I could recommend the place to everybody, but you know that I can't for obvious reasons." And I was like, "Yeah, sure," but you know, they were all grown up as well. You know, but most of them did anyway. I mean, uh, especially when there's alcohol involved, right?
1: Oh, indeed, <laughs> indeed. Okay, so now let me just uh, let me see. Okay, so now we're uh, we're in business. I would imagine forthcoming weeks we're fruitful and prosperous, and everybody, you know, you're you're the most popular guy in Baghdad at one point in time. I can imagine everyone loves your place, <laughs> the Baghdad Country Club, in full effect. A wonderful bar with proper bathrooms and everything. um... This sounds like a success story. Like, this should still be running. Like, this should be the Hard Rock Cafe. Um, but yet I'm talking to you <laughs> here in America, and we're some years later. So um, take me to the next
2: chapters now. Um, it's in business, well, so and it, how did it end? Yeah. The, the, the climate in Baghdad generally was changing uh, over, you know, the times we, we were there. Like, we used the term lawless, and I, I I use that sort of tongue-in-cheek in a way, I, You know, you couldn't go around shooting people, clearly. Sure. But, you know, if you were being a little bit cheeky, running, you know, bootlegging a bit of alcohol here, there's bigger things in the world to to worry about. And, you know, generally speaking, every Westerner saw this as a favor. And even a lot of the Iraqis saw this as a favor. There were some of the militias and some of the insurgencies that clearly would have killed us if they'd have caught us um, doing this. Um, But, you know, it's not like we were breaking the law in inverted commas by doing this. It was just the place wasn't really set up for laws in that way but just the feel of the green zone was changing it was becoming a lot more regimented they wanted to make it a much more like a military a huge military base effectively you know try to impose some regulations in the green zone started to be a bit more aggressive about how they did that you know there were like parking tickets were being issued and speeding fines and actually like guys I mean we're we're, we're at war here surely we've got better things to do than stop people for speeding but okay I get you know there has to be some there has to be some authority somewhere, and then generators that were outside were be told that we had to move them inside, and trash couldn't be left outside. But in mind, Baghdad was just full of trash because um, there was nowhere to put it. So, you know, so you were getting sort of a lot of aggravation for very minor things. And I don't, you know, to be honest, I don't really know what happened in the end as to why it was closed down. I mean, like anything, uh, you know, a couple of people were for whatever reason not particularly happy about the bar being there. And then you know I wasn't actually in country at the time when it got closed down. Um, I, I was in Amman in, in Jordan. Um, but my my bar manager called me up and said, "Look, you know, boss, we, we've just been shut down. The Westerners that are working for me basically, you've got 24 hours to get out of the country because their green zone rights were being revoked." So I got them out of country, and then. I ended up smuggling myself back into Baghdad. I <laughs> so always joked, that I'm one of the few guys that actually had to smuggle himself into the country. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to laugh. That's, that's... You know, all, all my life was there in the bar. I mean, all my money was there in the bar, all my stock was there in the bar, and we'd, we'd just gone heavy on stock because it was you know, I think it was just like beginning in Ramadan, so we couldn't transport alcohol during Ramadan, so we had to buy like 30 days worth of supply for that, which is huge amounts of booze. Right. Huge amounts. Uh, So that was all there and all my clothes were there and all my personal effects were there. So I had to kind of come in and try and get some of that out. So I managed to get a little bit of it out, but, you know, I couldn't get in the club to move the alcohol or get the cash out (laughs) or anything like that.
1: Now, let's just think about that for a second. The Baghdad Country Club's era inside the green zone is coming to an end. And his life's work is locked up inside of a building he can't even get to. What? All his money? All his booze? you got to be pissed off about that.
2: I mean, when people say to me, you know, uh, were you, were you mad that it got closed down? And I sort of say, you know, at the time I probably was, but in hindsight, I think it's probably the best thing that could have happened because the greens and all of Iraq was going to change at that stage. And it was, I could feel it coming anyway. And, yeah, you know, some of the guys that I was working with weren't, you know, they couldn't really see if so they were, let's buy some TVs, let's buy ovens, let's, you know, buy peach ovens, let's do this. I was like, you know what, guys, no more spending on CapEx. Something's going to change here. I just, I'm feeling it. And if it wasn't, you know, being shut down by these, you know, sort of police in the green zone, it was going to be the Iraqis at some stage because when the elections happened again or, you know, when the government that was elected in 2005 started to get some strength within itself, they were starting to flex their muscles a lot more. And it was it was a Shia government that came in that were very sort of anti-alcohol. Mm. Um, so they, they were going to start to ban alcohol anyway from the green zone. As much as I don't mind doing a bit of bootlegging here and there, I didn't want to do it completely. I, I would not have gone away with it. I mean, in the line. Um
1: And you certainly wouldn't have wanted to spend, you know, a better part of your life in some kind of Iraqi prison either.
2: You know, with the new uh, administration well, no. coming in there. No, that's that, that wasn't on my list of things to do that year. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm blessed, you know, these were my friends. I, I didn't want to offend anybody, particularly. I, that's no, right, what, right. What I was about doing. I mean, uh, and it was it had run its course. Uh, and, you know, it, it, I suppose it's really like James Dean, isn't it? You know, had he had gone on to the 80 years old, he probably wouldn't have been as famous as he was, given what happened to him at his young age. And I think the same is true of the club in, in many ways. It, 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 had it gone on and on and on, it would have just fizzled out anyway. But well, because it kind of, you know, was closed down and died it, in its heyday, still has some sort of kind of gravitas around it, uh, an intrigue.
1: And so ends the story of the Baghdad Country Club, a bootlegger's paradise. The legend of a proper bar in an improbable location.
2: Because, that, you know, that's, it is kind of this almost mythical, romantic kind of place that it was, was just a, you know, it was a bit naughty to be there. It wasn't quite a speakeasy, but it wasn't a fully open bar. It was kind of, you know, full of adventurers and, and bootleggers and, you know, this, this concophony of, of interesting people. But it can't
1: just end like that. What now? What was next? The start of the next chapters begins with the logo of the Baghdad Country Club.
2: So the, uh, the, the club symbol has always been the cross the golfer, silhouette of a golfer playing underneath the cross swords of Baghdad. You know, the famous monument in Baghdad. Mm. And the club motto has always been, it takes real balls to play here. And obviously that was a tongue in cheek thing. <laughs> um Playing off the golf and so on and so forth. So, now as we're moving forward with this charity thing, so the uh, and Down Vectors of America, I, I've been talking to the marketing people about certain aspects of it. And th- this young, very efficient marketing girl that I've I got, when she first started, she said, Look, I must admit, I didn't understand the, the link with the cross swords because I didn't actually know what the cross swords were. So, when she got to understand what the cross swords were, i.e., the, the monument in Baghdad, it all kind of started to make sense to her.
1: It's an amazing story and we're and there's a new chapter to write, which we're gonna to get to in just one second. Um, sidebar, we talk about how it was kind of romantic. Was there some romance kicking down at the old Baghdad Country Club? I'd imagine there probably was. I mean
2: just some I mean, I wouldn't know because I was too busy being a bar. Owner, but I'm <laughs> bar sure...
1: owners never get I'm romantic. Sure... Oh, you're so right.
2: <laughs> I'm sure there was some cross swords there. <laughs> Crossed swords. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, that's cool. Talk to me. Bring me up to speed now. The reason, actually, for this incredible experience that we've documented here, this journey that you've gone on that I've just recorded, uh, is to talk about a new project that you have. And we're going to, is it correct to say that we're going to kind of resurrect the Baghdad Country Club or you have plans to do something like this again as a benefit here stateside?
2: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, when the club closed down, a friend of mine wanted to do this fly-in-the-wall documentary, a producer from L.A. And he called me up and said, "Look, like, I want to do this. I was like, no, you can't. Anyway, so sort of fast forward, I was living in Dubai. He called me up and said, look, there's a guy called Josh Bearman. Uh He wrote the story called The Great Escape, which is what the film Argo with Ben Affleck is based on. Hmm. Uh, he writes for people like Rolling Stone or Atlantic Magazine. freelance journalists, but at the super high end of freelance journalism. He wants to do this big kind of four or five page article on you and the club. So we agreed and, you know, Josh and I became friends and it took about a year to write this thing. Um, And if you go on the Internet now and you Google Baghdad Country Club, James Thornett or whatever, it comes up with this cartoon. And that cartoon is like a five minute kind of snapshot of the story that was done by, I think it's The Atlantic, to promote the article that Josh wrote.
1: By the way, after this interview, I did Google Baghdad Country Club. I did watch this four and a half minute video and it's awesome. The visuals are like pencil sketch drawings of all the different scenes that he's depicted in this podcast. And one of my favorites is he depicted the airport where he first met Ahmed, the guy with the duty-free license. And it shows people sleeping everywhere because the flights are constantly getting
2: canceled. And flights were often canceled without any indication. and You had to turn out there and just kind of hope.
1: And when one flight gets canceled, the sign just reads, suck it. <laughs> now, the promotional video the article his friend wrote. It soon takes this story from Baghdad and directs it towards Hollywood.
2: So, Josh was doing a lot of uh, promo stuff during the Oscars with Ben Affleck because obviously Argo won um, some awards. And I'm told that he was talking with Ben Affleck and Robert Downey Jr. And they were asking what what he'd been writing and he told them about me. And so Robert Downey Jr. apparently sort of said, I want to buy the rights to that story. And I want to make it through my production team. So that was all going on. Robert Downey Jr. had been involved. So then I got, you know, uh, a sort of script writer got involved from the Downey Jr., Team Downey side. And so we've been busy kind of writing that. And that's kind of sidebar. So it's always been kind of bubbling over in the background. The country club as a whole, it's never kind of died as such. And then, kind of forward, I don't know, probably six months ago, uh, a friend of mine was setting up a charity. And the charity was called Sound Offs and it was basically to help soldiers with PTSD, She developed this app whereby you could you know, log on to this app. It gives you an anonymous number uh, or code or something. Um, and then that links through to a dedicated healthcare professional that stays your dedicated healthcare professional. And the idea being that there's numerous reasons why soldiers don't seek help when they have uh, problems associated with the war's and they don't want to lose their security clearance. You know, if you call somebody like Samaritans or some of the other helplines, you get one person one day and then another person another day. So there's no continuity. Um, you know, just the sheer paperwork you have to go through, perhaps if you through the VA or something. There are numerous reasons. But it's not my place to criticize the reasons uh, or any organizations around that. But anyway, that was his idea. That was his concept. And and he had a brother in the, as it tragically turned out, he had a, brother in the, a brother-in-law, a sorry, in the sealed, um, one of the SEAL teams that retired. Who recently committed suicide as well based mm. on this? Mm. so that kind of got me thinking you know he's a friend of mine that got me thinking like i, I you know i I had this club, we have this logo, we have you know that everybody's always loved the you know the the motto which is it takes real balls to play here, particularly golfers and things we used to sell a ton of golf balls because you know golfers like to walk on the golf course, and it's an interesting talking point mm-hmm. it's got the club logo on the bagdad country club, it takes real balls to play here. And then I kind of came up with the campaign phrase of take a round for a hero, sort of obviously tying in a round of golf or a round of drinks or whatever with soldiers taking a round. So I, you know, put a bunch of golf balls printed up and a bunch of like little Mason shot glasses to represent the bootlegging days. Again, sort of take a shot for a hero, Um, you know, caps, golf umbrellas, just general apparel that to kind of start to raise some money, you know, for these guys. And so I just, reached out to the Iraq and Afghan veterans of America just called it called them and said look this is what we want to do this is how we want to help and told him the story and he said like I love it I love it let's let's definitely work together you know we'll form a sponsorship partnership agreement um, you know we'll support you you support us um, obviously if we donate as part of that agreement to them they give their support in terms of you know publicizing us with their members we've had a couple of kind of promo fundraising nights we'll have a lot more of those we're we'll going to obviously move into like the golfing tournament side of think to support the golf balls and things like that but you know, anybody that, that wants to sort of host an event because we generate a lot of interest so if you're a bar slow between three and six o'clock on a Saturday. We break a bunch of people down. We have an event down there. We raise money as part of that. The bar makes money because more people drink in the bar. Everybody kind of wins. Everybody has a good time. So
1: it sounds to me like every bar can now sort of adopt for a few hours the feeling, the esprit de corps that was the Baghdad Country Club and, uh, you know, they can yeah, generate it- interest based on your theme and you can travel your theme
2: all over the place. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's almost like a pop-up thing, I guess, for the bars.
1: Right on. So, is there going to be,
2: is there going to be a bar again? Hopefully, at some stage in the not too distant future, when the bandwidth opens up a little bit, right, um, right, and we find the right place with the right partners to do it with as well. Um. Um, because I, I don't really want to be stood behind, you know, running a bar again at my time of life. <laughs> um, is perfectly feasible that that would be rounding the circle, as it were, to uh to, to complete where we sort of started from. Um, it's strange how these things kind of come around.
1: Mm. Well, I look um, forward to actually knowing you now and grabbing a pint with you very soon because I want to be one of the first people to uh share in. In some of this success, whether it's the resurrection of the bar, whether I meet you, you know, just prior to rocking the red carpet and Robert Downey Jr.'s movie that, st- you know, stars your life story. Uh, this is just really cool. I want to say I knew you win. It's the coolest booze-related story to come out of Warth that I've had the privilege to record, so.
3: Well,
2: just no, thank you for uh, for taking the time and giving me the, uh, the opportunity to tell it. I hope, uh, I hope you enjoyed it and, uh, you know.
1: <laughs> Let's end with the website itself. Share with me, how do we find you online?
2: So it's just www.bagdadcountryclub.org. O-R-G
1: BaghdadCountryClub.org Awesome. A bootlegger, veteran, a man of many worlds, many continents, and many achievements. But best of all, you're a man of a million stories.
2: I love it. (laughs) Absolutely. We'll get together for a bit.
1: And on that note, I say cheers. I'm Phil Briggs. And I'll talk to you next time at connectingvets.com.
0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts.